Our sermon this morning is on uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 35 to 43. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. The story of where Jesus heals a blind beggar. Uh, this is the, the last uh, recorded miracle that we see in the Gospel of, of Luke. Um, and it's, uh, the story is actually found in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's here in Luke 18. It's in uh, Matthew chapter 20 and Mark chapter 10. And in fact, if you like look at all three of the, the passages kind of uh, together, cross-reference them, you kind of pick up a few additional details. Uh, Matthew records that it wasn't just one blind man who was healed uh, by Jesus like we see in Luke, but it was two. And so uh, presumably there were two, and Luke kind of tells it in a more streamlined uh, way that's more memorable, easy to tell and retell. Mark includes the guy's name. Name is, uh, is Bartimaeus. And so seemingly when we kind of read all three together, there's two guys, one guy named Bartimaeus, one guy who's his buddy. Presumably the guy in Luke is, is Bartimaeus, but we're not entirely uh, sure. And Jesus kind of comes in and heals them both. So we are uh, going to read it this morning. We're going to just consider what, it, you know, what this story uh, has to tell us, what we can learn uh, from it about God, what we can learn um, about ourselves, what we can learn about uh, Jesus uh, and who he is and what he's done for us, what we can learn about the nature of salvation, what we can learn about the Christian life, all of these kinds of things. So I'm going to read Luke 18, verses 35 to 43, and I'll, I'll pray, and we'll dive right in. We'll celebrate communion. It says, uh, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, mercy on me. And those who were in front, they rebuked him. They told him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and he commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, help me, or Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who opens people's eyes, that you restore sight to blind men. We pray, Lord, this morning that you would uh, open the eyes of our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see you and experience you and be affected deep in our souls by who you are, by your glory by what you have done for us. Lord, uh, help us to leave here having been changed um, by, uh, by having encountered and experienced and been impressed by and, and impacted by the glory of Jesus our King. We love you. We commit these next few minutes to you. All right, so as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Same Jericho, more or less, uh, as the one that we know from the Old Testament in Joshua uh, chapter 6. It's about 15 miles 
uh, east of Jerusalem. Uh, so, you know, the, the, I mean, we just studied Genesis. Genesis ends off with the people of God uh, kind of relocating from uh, Canaan to Egypt uh, for, for bread so that they can, you know, have resources during a global famine. In Exodus, they leave Egypt because they're being oppressed and enslaved by Pharaoh. Leviticus, Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy. They wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. In Joshua, they cross over the Jordan River and take possession of the land that God has promised them. And the first city that they hit when they cross over the Jordan and they're about to take you know, possession of the entire land of Canaan is Jericho. It's the story where Joshua kind of leads the battle for seven days. They march around the city of Jericho. And on the seventh day, the, the walls that are surrounding this fortified city miraculously kind of come uh, tumbling down. And uh, so Jesus is there. He's at that Jericho. I mean, it had since been kind of decimated and rebuilt about a mile, uh, you know, south, maybe just uh, adjacent to it by by King Herod. But that Jericho, uh, none, none the, nonetheless. And so uh, he, he's, I guess he's about 15 miles away from Jerusalem, which is his ultimate destination. That's where he's going. It's where he's going to be crucified for sin. And um, he... Um, the 15-mile stretch between Jericho and Jerusalem is the stretch of road that's mentioned in the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you're reading Luke chapter 10 about the Good Samaritan, Jesus actually says there's a guy and he's traveling on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. So that's the stretch that Jesus has ahead of him that he's going to travel between now and when he arrives in Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. But he's in Jericho. He, he uh, you know comes across this, this blind uh, beggar. We don't know if his blindness uh, if something that has been, he was born that way, or if it's something that's happened as a result of uh, something in his life really. But one way or the other, it's, it's definitely profoundly life-altering, right? You're blind in the ancient world. Uh, you know, there, it's, it's different. There, there's less social structures and safety nets in place than there are today. There's less rights and, and advocacy for, for people with disabilities than there is today. You can't work. You can't earn. You can't afford the basic necessities of life. You, you have no home, no possessions. This man, his, this is his entire existence, is sitting by the roadside begging. It's where he is day, night, good weather, bad weather, right? Uh, he, this, is, this is where he is. This is where he lives. This is what, this is what he does, and it's all that he, that he does. You know, can't, no, no, just doesn't have any, yeah, doesn't have any possessions, no, no, you know, can't change his clothes, can't take a bath, no personal hygiene, no one to help him. He's just sitting there all alone, day and night, can't see a thing, begging, hoping that maybe a stranger today is going to give him some scraps that he can use to, to feed himself and kind of live until the next day. It's a total picture of hopelessness. And desperation, that's what this man's life has, has become, hopeless and, and desperate. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. Everywhere that Jesus went, he was accompanied by huge crowds, thousands and thousands of people. His reputation preceded him. He had spent uh, you know, several years at this point uh, ministering, uh, in and around Galilee, he'd been traveling for, for quite some time from uh, Galilee 
down to Jerusalem. Everywhere he went, his reputation precedes him. This is the guy. This is the, the teacher, the, the charismatic, profound, popular teacher from Galilee, from Nazareth. He's awesome. Like, this is our one chance to see him, to meet him. He performs miracles, all of these, like, really impressive signs. He, you know, feeds thousands of people with, with a, a loaf of bread and, and you know, a, a handful of fish. Like, this guy does really cool things. We want to see him. Not to mention, if you're sick, if you're ill, if you have a particular need, perhaps he can, you know, heal you. Perhaps he can meet the need that you have. And so just tons and tons of people flock. They would travel. They would, they would travel with them for days on end uh, in the hopes that they would see something cool. Or when he came to their hometown, they would kind of come flying out from where they were to see Jesus and to experience Jesus. So blind man hears all of these people, the electricity of the crowd, and he asks what is going on. Verse 37, they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Right? That guy uh, that, that kind of has that aura around him, he is coming here, and so everyone wants to meet him, everyone wants to see him. Verse 38, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Right? Presumably the guy has no idea where exactly Jesus is. Is he with an earshot or not? Am, am I on the, the back end of a crowd and there's, you know, Jesus is way far away, or is he right next to me? Doesn't know, doesn't care, just immediately screaming as loud as he can, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The son of David is an interesting term. This is the first time that we've seen it used in the Gospel of Luke. But um, it refers to the Savior, Messiah, King of the nation of Israel, of, of the people of God. David, David was a towering figure in Israel, right? David was, you know, there, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Babe Ruth, uh, you know, Paul, Paul, like beat the Beatles, like all, like, like every, you know, music, like military might, you know, ruler, king, administrator. He more or less kind of founded the, the, the monarchy. You know, he, he was the first king, the best king, not the first king, but, but the first good king. And, Certainly the best king. I mean, he was David's. I mean, and everyone kind of looked to David as this hero, this mythical figure that just you know killed thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of his enemies, and reigned in power and might. Everyone looked back to the rule and reign of David as man. That that was man. We were killing it. That was the, those were the good old days. Was when David was the king of Israel, right? I mean, today you know. Today, someone will say, you know, today, say people disagree on when the good old days are, right? Whether or not they're in the past, present, or future, you know, someone will say the good old days when I was a kid, you know, whatever, like you could send your kids out to play. It was, they didn't have to worry about if they'd get hurt or not. Gas costs a nickel. You go to see a movie, it costs a nickel, whatever, you know. Uh, you know, there wasn't, the news wasn't as depressing. Those were the good old days. Other people say, well, those days weren't really that good. You know, we couldn't vote. We couldn't, you know, we earned 50 cents for the same job that you earned a dollar for. Or their glass ceiling, we couldn't even get the job. Whatever. So, like, there's, there's discrepancy in America today about when, when or if there ever were the good old days. Not in Israel. David was the, the like, this guy, like, put our enemies, like, he, he defeated our enemies. We were being oppressed by literally giant men. 
nine feet tall, taunting us, mocking us, defeating us, brutalizing us. David came in and killed them and defeated them, right? We had, uh, we had you know, one king named Saul. He, uh, you know, uh, was, not, was not the best king, right? We, we got, so it, all, it started with, with the, you know, after the, the conquest of Canaan in the book of Joshua that we mentioned a minute ago, it started with a time of judges, and so God says, here you are, a newly formed people in a newly formed nation. You be people, I'll be your God. And they're like, great, but we want a king. And God's like, well, I'll be your king. And they're like, we don't want you. It's like, we want a real king. We want a real, as if a person is more, like, but we want a real king that like the other countries have. And so they chose Saul, this big, tall, impressive guy. And Saul uh, was, was not an impressive king. He didn't trust God. He didn't obey God. Then in comes David. Small child, shepherd boy, defeats Goliath, right? Puts down all of these threats, military victory, wherever he goes, expands the borders of the nation of Israel. And now there's peace and there's security and there's prosperity. He's writing songs the whole time he's doing this. He's a you know, musician, a worship leader. Everyone loved David. Everyone feared King David. Everyone respected King David. And, and Israel was as it was intended to be under the rule and reign of King David. And uh, towards the end of King David's life, right? he's amassed all of this military victory. He's amassed all of this fortune, this plunder, spoils of war. He's living in this really awesome palace that he's made. Everyone in all of Israel, their lives are comfortable. Everything's good. And he looks around and he's like, you know what? Uh, we, I feel bad because we... Um, we haven't built a temple yet. I built my own house before I built God his house. And so uh, David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says, See, look, I dwell in a house of cedar. Um, yeah, I think we have, yeah, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So all, um, you know, all, all while they were traveling through the wilderness, making their way to Canaan, uh, God had kind of instructed Israel on how to make the tabernacle, this big, huge tent, bigger than this building. Um, that they would kind of erect everywhere that they would go and kind of be, you know, uh, it would be there where they would have worship services. And then when they would relocate to another place, they would tear it down and travel and re-kind of construct it each place. And that was still what was happening during the reign of King David. And he's like, look, we have all this money. I have this great house. Why don't we build a temple? And God responds. He says, uh, thus says the Lord. Wait, yeah, let's, let's go back and do that one one more time. Uh, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from Israel uh, to, of Israel to Egypt, from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling, and in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I did God ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, "Why have you not built me a house of cedar?" God's like I. I appreciate the gesture. I just don't, I've never asked for it. So don't, I don't know that I need you to build me a house, at least at this moment. He goes on. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you, David, from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off your enemies before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they will dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as they did formerly for the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. 
Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house, right? You're not going to make me a house. I'm going to make you a house. But it's different. Like, you're not going to make me a house, meaning a temple, a physical temple. I'm going to make you a house, meaning a, a line, a lineage, a descendant, a ruler. Your name will go on forever. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God's words to King David, I will raise up for you a descendant who's going to rule like you, but his rulership is going to transcend yours. It's going to go on forever and ever, right? You are the little K king over a little K kingdom, and there's going to come a son, a descendant of David, who's going to be a big K king over uh, his big K kingdom. His rule will last forever, and he will be my eternal son. I will be his uh, eternal father. That's the, that's the descendant. That's the son of David. So, so when the blind man uses the phrase son of David, that's what he's picking up on. That's what he's referring to is this shepherd, warrior, king, son of God, defeat the enemies of God's people, rule over them forever and ever. You can go back to to Luke 18 now. So when when the blind man says that, he's speaking theologically. He's saying uh, Jesus of Nazareth, who's a dude, a guy, just Jesus of Nazareth uh, has no particular, uh, you know, implications of divinity or power or authority or messiahship. But son of David means you are the messiah. You are the long-awaited fulfillment of all of the promises that God ever made to his people. When God said that the the lion would lay down with the lamb. When God said that his people would be vindicated, that they would be uh, you know, saved from their oppressors, all of those promises in the Old Testament, you are the one that I think is going to all of that happen. And so this man says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are God incarnate. You are the one who has come in the line of David to save your people and finally vindicate them. I think you are him Please have mercy on me. God's mercy means uh, his goodness, uh, specifically directed toward those who are uh, suffering or who are in misery or distress. And so he's saying, uh, that I, am, I am that. I am candidate number one. Right of, of misery and distress. I'm suffering. I can't see. I can't provide for myself. I don't have a home. I don't have any basic necessities. I don't have anything good in life. Every single day, I'm flirting with death, not knowing if I'm going to survive it or not, just based on the charity of others. I need your mercy. This blind man is a, is a picture of, of saving faith. He's a picture of desperation, It's a picture of, you know, what it looks like when someone comes to the end of themselves and their their resources and they look away from themselves. They look to Jesus and they acknowledge Jesus's supremacy and Jesus's authority and Jesus's sovereignty and Jesus's sufficiency. And they cast themselves 
headlong at the feet of Jesus, asking him to save them. That's what that's what this man is doing, and that's that's kind of uh, it's it's intended to be a picture of saving faith. In verse thirty-nine, look at the response of those around them. Everyone who was in front of him were telling him to be silent. These are people who, so they're not blind. They have houses to go home to. Their lives are relatively comfortable. I mean, compared to his, they're they're incredibly comfortable. And yet here they are standing in front of him, right? Uh, you know, others' centeredness would dictate that uh, you know this man has a more pronounced need than I do. Jesus is someone who might potentially meet needs for people. Let me put him in front of me so that he might have more access to Jesus than I do. That's not how they're they're acting. They're standing in front of him and they're rebuking him, saying to be silent, right? Be quiet. You're embarrassing us. You look gross. Like you're not you're not the person that we want representing our city. This is a respectable city. We all, you know, like we, we, we have a lot going for us, so we want you and people like you to be out of sight, out of mind. You can beg, but don't draw attention to yourself. Don't be disruptive, right? Don't, uh, you know, we, we don't want people to, to look at you and think that, you know, have their vision of you or, or how they see you, their perception of you to bring down how they see or perceive or what they think of us and our city. So uh, you you can be there, you can beg, but don't do it in a way that is, that gets in our, that, that like in, encroaches on our personal space. Don't do it in a way that bothers me, disrupts me, interrupts me. It sounds a lot like how, how the world understands religious belief today. Right? You can Believe whatever you want to believe, right? Have whatever faith that you want to have. Do what, like, do whatever you want to do. It's your business, but keep it to yourself. Keep it, keep it down. Don't be loud. Don't be disruptive. Don't rock the boat. Don't impose your beliefs on anyone else. It makes other people uncomfortable when they hear you talking about Jesus and how you need Jesus and you trust Jesus and they need to trust Jesus. Like, tone it, take it easy with all of that. You know, fanaticism, it's embarrassing. You do what you want to do. You believe what you want to believe. Do it quietly. Keep it to yourself. Don't interrupt us. Don't bother us. You've got your truth. I've got mine. You've got your thing that helps you to live your life the way that you want to live it. I've got mine. Everyone stay in their own lane. The blind man cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. He's having, having none of it, right? He won't be denied. He won't be silenced. He recognizes that, that uh, Jesus is, you know, his only hope, his only shot. This is, you know, I, that Jesus could potentially meet my need. I am profoundly and utterly needy, and I need to, I need to, to just, you know, put all my eggs in this basket. I need to get this man's attention. I need to ask him for mercy, no matter what it does to, to how other people are perceiving me. Everyone else in the crowd would be happy to, to see Jesus, happy to meet Jesus, happy to experience Jesus, happy to receive grace, mercy, relief, provision from Jesus. 
But I don't know that they understand themselves as, as being in need of what Jesus has to offer them. I don't know that they're desperate for what Jesus has to offer because when push comes to shove, they'd be happy to experience Jesus, uh, but they would prefer to keep their respectability intact. They'd prefer to keep their uh, to, to keep from being embarrassed. They'd prefer to keep from you know uh, appearing as if they are you know appearing in any way other than they want to be perceived. If Jesus comes over here and interacts with me, that's great, but I'm not going to cry out. I'm not going to act undignified. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm going to play it cool, uh, you know. And the reason is because they're, as they, their, their life's not that bad. As they understand it, their situation's not that bad, right? Uh, and therefore, their need for Jesus is not that pronounced. And therefore, it's not worth losing face uh, over in front of their friends. But the blind man's situation could not be any more desperate. He literally has nothing to lose, so he doesn't. He's not worried about uh, embarrassing himself. He's not worried about losing face. He's not worried about losing social capital. He doesn't have any to begin with, right? So, so, so the difference between between a person who comes to Jesus with saving faith and a person who's merely interested in Jesus or a person who's curious about Jesus. Right is that is that, is that the person with saving faith recognizes that it's it's worth it for me to receive great I, I will give up anything and everything that I have in order to receive the saving grace of of Christ right it, to to trust in Jesus and follow Him is not uh, it, it's costly. To trust in Jesus, you have to admit that you can't save yourself. You have to admit that you can't will your way into heaven. You have to admit that you can't get your life back on track all by yourself, on your own, through your own strength. You have to admit that you need Jesus to do those things for you. You have to admit those things publicly to everyone around you. It's embarrassing. You kind of lose, you, you lose status in their eyes. And then from that point forward, you have to walk in costly discipleship, sacrificial discipleship. It's not particularly pleasant. And so no one's ever going to do that. No one is ever going to undergo the costliness of turning from their sin and trusting in Jesus and following Him in discipleship unless they recognize that their situation is, is dire and desperate and therefore calls for those extreme measures. If I, if I believe that God is marginally holy and that I am marginally sinful, and therefore that my situation is slightly less than ideal, then coming to Christ would be of marginal benefit. The cost of, of you know, my dignity, self-sufficiency, autonomy, my own personal sovereignty over my own life, the luxury of doing whatever I want without having to answer to anyone, those costs are too high, and my situation does not warrant uh, paying them. But if I believe that God is infinitely, immeasurably holy, and that I am, am overcome by my sin and guilt, my situation is desperate and hopeless, there's nothing that I won't do to be saved. Even if it's embarrassing, even if I lose face, 
even if I have to give up control over my, my life and let someone else reign over my life. The blind man recognizes his need. He recognizes uh, Christ's authority and sufficiency to meet his need and save him. And he cries out no matter what the cost to have Jesus come and save him. Which, of course, raises the question for us, right? Are we, like this blind man, are, are we willing to cry out to Jesus, trust in Jesus, follow Jesus, obey Jesus, even when it's inconvenient, even when it's embarrassing, even when the world is telling us to be quiet, you're causing a scene, right? Even when, it, even when you lose your social capital, are we willing to cry out to, trust in, and identify with Christ, even when it means that we'll be despised by the world. That's what Jesus is calling us to, a, a life of humble, repentant faith, and then a life of costly discipleship. Now, at this point, I imagine that most Christians are starting to feel one of two ways, right? They read this story, you're either thinking, all right, well, that sounds like a pretty high bar, right? That, that blind man responding in that way, right? Like boldly identifying with Jesus, crying out to him, trusting him. Everyone is saying, be quiet. No, I'm not going to be quiet. I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what it costs. Some of us read that and think, that's a high bar. That, that's an example of someone that I, you know, would, I need to grow to be more like him in my life. I need to be more committed to Christ, even when it's costly. I need to be more bold in how I identify with Jesus, not just when it's convenient, but when it's inconvenient. There's plenty of people who might feel that way. That's good. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you to grow, and that's helpful. I imagine that there's some Christians, though, who read this about this blind man identifying with Jesus, even when everyone's telling him to be quiet, and it resonates with them, right? Because they love to fight, right? They, they love to get in arguments with, with people. They're, they're always, you know, judging non-believers, antagonizing, fighting, arguing. I always want to right, theological nitpickers. I just have a, a whole list of things that I'm willing to argue with about, you about and fight about. Culture warriors. Every hill is worth dying on. It's us versus them. Don't have a lot of non-Christian friends because no one likes to be around them. Don't have a lot of friends at all because there's a very narrow profile of what you have to look like in order to be my friend. And everyone that doesn't look exactly like me and think exactly like me that finds me exhausting to be around. These guys read a text like this and they say, yeah, like, good, like, go get them, right? Right? They don't necessarily feel convicted that they need to cry out to Jesus like this. They feel emboldened to be more combative, more argumentative more antagonistic with the people around them. And it needs to be said that the story of Jesus healing this blind beggar is not uh, calling us to be argumentative or antagonistic or combative or prideful. It's calling us to cry out to Jesus in humility. To cling desperately to... like there, there, There's a lot of Christians, if we're being honest, who are arrogant and unkind, unloving, they're belligerent. But they do all of that and then they've convinced themselves that they're being bold. 
right? They're being faithful, like an Old Testament prophet, right? Speaking truth to power. When in reality, they're just being mean and quick to speak and slow to listen. Which is not faithfulness, that's sinfulness. So, we we read this text, we need to realize that that God is calling us to cry out to Jesus, trust in Him, even when it costs us everything, even when the world is telling us to be quiet. But at the same time, we need to remember there's a difference between being bold and committed to Christ and being prideful and argumentative. Of course, on the flip side, there's a difference between, uh, you know, uh, a difference between being compassionate and winsome but also uh, abandoning the truth of the gospel out of fear uh, of the world, caring more about our reputation than we care about the word of God. Which is not relevance, that's sinfulness. So, difference between being faithful, which God has called us to be, and being argumentative and combative, which is sin. There's a difference between being winsome and compassionate, which God has called us to be, and denying the gospel in order to please the world which is sin. And so the task of the Christian in the context of, the, of his community and, and with the help of the Scripture and his, his conscience, the Holy Spirit, is to walk that line. I'm going to be faithful but not combative. I'm going to be compassionate and winsome, but I'm not going to fear the world and abandon the gospel uh, for the sake of, of the world. So verse 40, Jesus stops and commands him to be brought to him. Again, thousands of people there surrounding him. And so, you know, this man sees a lot of people all the time, especially uh, around the Passover season, which is what it is right now. There's a lot, this is a high traffic area, road with lots of people. 99.9% of them walk right on by, right? Don't make eye contact. Don't even notice him. They're too busy. They talk about him behind his back, Right? I wonder who sinned to make this guy blind. I wonder if it was him or I wonder if it was his, his parents, right? Kids, obey your parents so you don't end up like this guy, right? What, what, you know, most people ignore him. Most people uh, scoff at him, write him off. The one guy who it would be understandable that he doesn't have time or space in his schedule to stop and identify with and spend time with this blind man, the one guy, Jesus, is the one guy who goes out of his way. to interact with this man. And he came near and he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Probably the first time he's heard that. He may have heard, you know, here, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you this, right? Uh, beggars, beggars can't be choosers. So you just, you know, you'll take it, you'll like it, Right? Here's what I'm going to do for you. I know what you need better than you do. Jesus instead, uh, you know, draws near and listens instead of speaks. What do you want me to do for you? How can I serve you? He cares about the man. He cares about his life. He cares. He humanizes him. He listens to him. The man says, Lord, let me recover my sight. Just kind of a, a bold request, right? You'd think, uh, if this is a normal person in front of me, then I'll ask him for 
what the leftover, you know, what's left of his sandwich. If it's a particularly wealthy or magnanimous person in front of me, maybe I'll ask him for some money out of his wallet so that I could eat something else or so that I could, you know, have some other need be met. What kind of audacious request? I want you to, to help me to, I want you to restore my sight. The only way this request makes any sense at all is if you believe that the man you're talking to is God, if he's, if he's the, the Lord, right? If he's the son of David, if he's the Messiah who's finally come to, to right every wrong and to, to put an end to all suffering and to make the world the way that it was created to be, right? That's the only way that this request makes any sense. His request is evident of saving faith. The same saving faith that refers to Jesus as Lord, my master, the one to whom I answer, the one who's in authority over me, and who earlier referred to Jesus as the son of David, the Messiah, the King, God himself who's come to dwell with men. Verse 42, and then Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. There's, there's any number of episodes where Jesus heals people in the Bible. He often, you know, and they all, they all kind of have a different flavor. They all take on some different characteristic to them. You know, he'll, another blind man, he spits in the mud, makes, makes it into mud, rubs it on the guy's eyes. You know, um, in, Mark, in, in Mark, there's a, a paralytic, and he doesn't, uh, he doesn't heal the man from his paralysis. Uh, he says, your sins are forgiven. And then everyone is like, oh my gosh, like how could he say that? And then he, you know, tells the man to get up and, and walk. Uh, to kind of prove that he is who he said he was. When Lazarus, di- like when Lazarus dies, Jesus doesn't even go to him, but he intentionally stays back and waits for days until Lazarus died. La- they say Lazarus is sick, and he's like, "Great, we'll go later this week." You know, whenever, whenever we get to it. And they're like, "But you could heal him. You could make him better." He's like, "All right, well, you know, I'm not in a rush." Lazarus dies. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus is constantly responding to needs and, and illness and, and kind of constantly performing miracles in any number of different ways. This one's just very straightforward, very simple, right? I can see your faith. I can see your heart. I can see that you trust me and therefore recover your sight. He immediately recovers his sight. Verse 43, right? No, in, in an instant, no lag time, no, nothing else needs to happen. Before he couldn't see anything, now he can see everything. Man's life is completely just flipped on its head because of one word. I mean, literally, uh, it's one word in the original language. Jesus says, see. We re- interpret it as recovery or sight, but just see. And so now all of a sudden he can uh, see So what, what's he going to do now? Right? Like, what, like now that you have confessed your need, Jesus has met your need, he has extended mercy and grace to you, and you can see. Remember all of the things that we've been saying that this guy's life are just, are just lacking in this guy's life. A home, a family, money, a job, uh, hygiene, clothing. I mean, all of these things. Like, man, now you can go and get started on all of those things. You can go, uh, you know, uh, begin to check all of these boxes that have heretofore gone unchecked in your life. How is, how is Bartimaeus going to, going to respond? How is the blind man going to respond? 
verse 43, he immediately recovered his sight and he followed Jesus, glorifying God. Those are what people do when the grace of God comes into their life, interrupts their life, and saves them and changes them. They respond with worship and with obedience and by following Jesus. Plenty of time later to do all of the other stuff that's on your list. Plenty of time to do all the things that you haven't been able to do yet. But the first priority right now is to follow Jesus, worship Jesus, and ascribe glory and honor to Jesus for his having saved you and having been merciful to you. And not just the man who received grace from Jesus, but ever and around him. All the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God as, as well. Right? When, when God's grace comes into the life of someone else in my field of vision, it's a big deal. It changes their life. They get up. They praise God. They follow God. It's impossible to ignore for, for friends, family, neighbors, colleagues. Right? When they see God's grace in someone else's life, it tends to grab their attention and it tends to stir their affection for God. That's really the the big idea when we read this text and seek to apply it to our lives, is is to recognize that in in uh, in one sense, this is a story about a thing that happened in time and space twenty centuries ago. You know, people had names, and you know, they they physically lived here on this planet. But in another sense, this is a, a description of something that happens every single time a person turns from their sin and trusts you. This is this story is an illustration about how salvation works. Because apart from Christ, all of us are and were spiritually blind. We can't see where we're going. We can't see who God is. We can't see what God wants from us. We can't manufacture how to uh, prepare for death and get to heaven. We're blind men groping around in a dark room trying as best as we can, knowing full well that one day we're going to meet God and give an account to God, but with a complete inability to prepare for that day and to be ready for that day. Because we're blind. Sin has blinded us. And apart from apart from God's revelation, our, our chances of accomplishing salvation Preparing for the day when we will give an account to God are no better than the chances of a blind person reading a book or driving a car or hitting a air, hitting an arrow, hitting a target with a bow and arrow. Right? We're, we're spiritually blind. We have no way, no capacity to please God. And then the good news of the gospel comes into our life, it restores our sight, right? the, The lights come on where there was darkness. Jesus comes to us, listens to us, cares for us, opens the eyes of our heart, brings light where there was darkness, brings sight where there was blindness, and now all of a sudden, we can see. We can see who God is, right? God is holy and righteous and sovereign and good. We can see who we are, right? We are guilty and broken and and desperate. We can see who Jesus is, a gracious and kind and compassionate Savior. 
We can see these things and we can respond in sight by trusting in Jesus and casting ourselves onto the person and work of Jesus and receiving grace from him, which is what we do uh, when we celebrate communion. We remember the person and work of Jesus. We remember that his body was broken, his blood was poured out to save us, and, and we, we, you know, uh, to open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see God's glory, respond rightly to it, and be reconciled to God and saved from the wrath of God. Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And after he gave thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. If you're a believer, we invite you to take communion with us. Music's going to start during the last song. Come up, take the elements. They're right up here. They're individually packaged. Take them back to your seat. Take a moment. Pray. Confess your sin. Remember the truth of the gospel, the sufficiency of Christ. Eat and drink to celebrate the salvation that we have freely in him. If you're not a Christian, we ask you not to take communion because the Bible teaches against that. But instead, we would invite you to to trust in Jesus as your Savior. right? Uh, to, To take a moment. Confess, same thing, confess your sin to Jesus, receive the grace that he offers, trust in him so that you can be reconciled to God and so that you can be prepared to take communion with us next time. I'm going to pray. Ask Jason to come up and uh, get ready for the last song and then we'll celebrate communion and sing together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a gracious God who speaks and and brings light out of darkness and sight out of blindness. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to see, not just physically, but, but spiritually, that we can see you and savor you and trust in you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to like this blind man, that you would help us to to see our desperation before you, to rejoice um, in the grace that we have received from you, and to respond by worshiping you and glorifying you and following you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.